Amen. Why don't y'all stand with me as we read God's word from the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, starting at verse 34 and 35. It says this, I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. Father, your commands aren't a burden. They're beneficial, Father. I pray that we would see that as we unpack what it means to love one another. Would you remind us of the gift uh, of this command uh, is not just to us, but to a world that looks at us to try to get a picture of what you're like. Father, help us to embrace uh, both the responsibility and the rewards that come from loving one another as you have loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, You can go ahead and take your seats. Um, For those of you all that this may be your first week here, uh, we're continuing in a series called Who Needs the Church? And this was just birthed out of Uh, saying, hey, what are some of the most common misconceptions, the most common objections that people have when it comes to being a part of a church, and how do we help folks to see that the answer to who needs the church is that we all need the church. And so I've titled this one, um, I Don't Need a Label. Um, And here's what I mean by that. I want to start off and just take some time and think through the concept of labels. Our world, we hate Labels, because we feel like labels cheapen our experiences, right? Like, uh, I remember the first time that I told somebody that I liked Seinfeld, and they said, what? You black, right? Like, because you're black, you shouldn't like this. That they feel restrictive, right? That our world uh, defines masculinity and femininity as these two things, and it feels like we're we're put in this box where our only companion is claustrophobia. It feels tight when we get these labels. Labels can tend to feel exclusive. I'm reminded of a scene from the Little Rascals where they have a sign on their door that says, He-Man Woman Haters Club, right? Yeah. And so it's saying we're this, and we don't want anybody else to come in. Labels can feel empty, right? I'm reminded of this uh, show, The Office, and there's this guy, Dwight Schrute, and he really wants to feel important, so they give him this title, assistant to the regional manager. Empty label. Didn't mean anything, right? There's a bunch of these that go around. Thought leader, right? Like, what does that really mean? Empty labels. Labels can also be confusing, and here's what I mean by this. Uh, In this past presidential uh, election that we went through, um, all over the news, it was kind of thrown out, you know, 81% of evangelicals voted for Trump. And so now this term, kind of white evangelical, is a pejorative, or it's a derogatory term that's used to describe a system of Christianity that seems to be oppressive. And it can be confusing because there are folks that's like, hey, I'm white, I'm evangelical, but when you put those together, I'm not exactly whatever it is that you mean by that that you hate. Labels can be confusing. They can be intimidating. Um, I uh, went to speak one time at this thing and uh, this guy came up before me and he introduced me, take this, as the most humble person that he's ever met. So then I get on stage and I'm like, that's very hard to live up to. How am I supposed to show this off? When those are put on us, it can feel constraining. Like now I have to live up to this thing that they put on me. Labels can even be deceptive, especially when they're self-labels. Uh, me, Richard, and Erica Brown went, went, went out to eat a few months ago, and they both just got done. They watched What the Health, and so they were both like, 
I'm vegan. And so um, catfish comes out, my catfish comes out, and she's like, let me have a bite. Um, and I'm like, well, you're vegan. And so she takes a bite, and she says, I'm vegan. And I said, no, 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 that's not how this works. Uh, as, as soon as you ate this, you were no longer whatever it is that you think that you were. Labels can be deceptive, especially when they're self-labeled. So they can feel constraining, and we want to break free of them. Here's one label that I want to spend our time on today. Church member. What do you think of when you think of that? Not Christian, because folks would raise their hands and say, hey, I'm Christian, but church member. Many people feel like it's restrictive. Churches have thrown this concept out because they feel like we just want to make sure that folks love and we're not trying to constrain them and force them to love a specific group of people because as soon as you force this concept of family, it can really start to feel fake, right? It's like when I was young, you know, getting in fights with my brothers and my mom said, well, y'all hug. And it's like, ah, you can't really force this hug. I'm going to hug him, but I'm going to pretend in my mind that I'm strangling him. And that's how I'm going to get through that. This forced commitment can feel fake. I can feel empty, right? It can feel like a formality where it's like, all right, they told me to join a church. They say it's supposed to be family. How come every time I come, people still ask me what my name is? That I've come in and I've done all of what they said that I would do, but this really doesn't feel like family. It feels forced and it feels fake. I hear all the time about this concept of family, but I don't have it. It's confusing. It's intimidating to feel like, all right, now we're family. So now I have to care for all of these folks the way that I have to care for my family, and we can start to get paralyzed by just the thought of what it means to be a part of a a church. Maybe you're here and you feel like that label is distracting. We're supposed to love and evangelize and share God's love with all of the world, but I feel like every time I come into this church specifically, we talk about being a church member and caring for other Christians And it takes me away from what I should do in sharing God's love with the world. These forced friendships that you're trying to build, they really don't do any good for me. They keep me from sharing God's truth with the world. And they really don't do any good for the world because the world looks and sees a bunch of forced friendships and they don't want any part of it. Labels, especially church member, can often cheapen the experience of things. And you and I feel like we want to break free. I'm about love. I'm not about labels. I want to do what God has called me to do. I don't want to be confined to this group. I'm going to push back for a bit and just say, just because some labels are empty, it doesn't mean all of them are useless. Helpful ones. Marriage. Dating, right? Relationship. I had a friend in college, um, and he started dating this girl. They were basically dating, and she's like, um, I don't like labels. We know what we have. And he came back, and he's like, yeah, I don't really like it. We know what we have. And I'm like, I'm not concerned if y'all know what you have. I'm concerned with the light-skinned dude with the good hair that's, that's flirting with her in your face. I don't think he knows what y'all have. Right? Marriage. That's a good label. Adoption. Passports. All of those are good, beneficial labels. Just because some are misused, it doesn't mean all are useless. And so here's what I, I want you to see. Labels can be too constricting. Think of it like a belt. If a belt is too tight, it suffocates. But the answer is not to just make it too loose, because if a belt is too loose, it really doesn't do you any good. 
The goal is that it's just right so that it upholds what it is that it should uphold. And I think that's what this concept of church member does. It upholds something special. It gives us uh, the parameters of, uh, around which we define God's love. And so here's my main point. I'm going to tip my hand at the front of it. And it's this. Labels, especially that of formal church mem- membership, doesn't cheapen love. It deepens love. This label is not meant to cheapen love. It's not to, meant so that it feels forced and or fake, but it's meant to deepen the very love that God calls us to have. And so for that, we're going to spend our time in John chapter 13. Uh, And as we go here, I just want you to know, we're going to spend a bunch of our time clarifying the nature of love. Church membership is not the goal. It's just the guide or the roadway that's going to get us to the goal of being able to love like Christ calls us. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time on love, and we're going to talk about how being a part of a church plays into that as the end. So John chapter 13, a quick background on the the gospel of John or the gospels as a whole to get you there is Jesus Christ comes to display what God is like, specifically God's love for all of us. The world misunderstood the authority of God, so they twisted it and oppressed people. The world misunderstood the nature of God's love and commitment, so they twisted it and manipulated people. So much so that when thoughts or concepts of God come up, you have two types of people. One, you have folks that have bad affections, which means this. God has has come into the world, and people didn't want any part of him because they, they were scared of him. They felt despair, frustration, or disdain. John chapter 3, 19, it'll be here on the screen. Christ just, just says this, that the light came into the world. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Jesus came to reveal what God is like. People didn't run towards him. They ran away from him. They put him on on the cross because they had no clue what it was that was right in front of them. And in their hearts, they longed for something that was not God. But then in John chapter 3, you've got this one guy, Nicodemus, who doesn't seem like he just has bad affections. Uh, he seems like that he actually wants to learn more about the way to get towards God, uh, but he has bad directions, which means this. Even if you have a heart, even if you have the intent to pursue God with all of your heart, if you go about it the wrong way, you're never going to get there. What matters in a destination is not your intentions, it's your directions. If you leave from Atlanta and go south, Regardless of how much you want to get to Canada, you're never going to get there. If you start trying to to pursue God and you really want to get to him and you stack up all these good deeds on top of one another, regardless of how well intended you are, you're never going to get there. John 3.16, this is what Jesus says. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Hear this. Jesus did not come into the world the first time to condemn people. He didn't come to judge the world the first time. The first time that he came was to warn all of us that we had hearts that were far from God and left in the state that we were, we would be condemned. He came to clarify God's love in this. Left in our state of turning our backs on God, God has no obligation to save any one of us. But God makes this pathway through Jesus. He comes and lives a life that you and I couldn't live, dies on the cross for our sins, not just to give us the right directions towards God, but to change the affections of our heart so that we'll actually want the God that he pointed to. 
This was his work. This is what he's done. This is the invitation that still exists for all of us here that are weighed down by our guilt, by our sin, by our shame. This is what Christ does. But in John chapter 13, he pulls the disciples off to the side and he says, even though I'm getting ready to do this work to change the hearts of mankind, once I leave this world physically, there's still going to be work for you all to do. Jesus' work on the cross was decisive. It accomplished exactly what God had intended for it to do. But his work in the world is by no means done. He still wants to clarify what God is like through his disciples. And so he leaves them and he gives them this. And, And in this verse, there's three things that he gives them. He gives them a command, love. A context, one another, and a consequence. So the world will know that you're mine. So I want to start here with how um, most of us tend to read this verse and then spend the bulk of our time trying to talk about what I think is right here as plain as day, but we're missing. Verse 34 says this, I give you a new command. We're going to stop right there. Jesus comes and he starts off on the scene. Um, and this is commander in chief Jesus. This is authoritative Jesus. This is not Jesus is my homeboy. This is not he's my best friend. This is him saying, I'm giving you a command. This is something that you should do. And it's going to be important. So just hang on to that in the back of your head. I give you a com- command three times that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not only is the command repeated three times, but the word that he'll use for love is a word in the Greek translated as agape. It's a specific kind of love where it's not led by emotion but commitment, an act of the will, everlasting, faithfulness. It springs from the very nature of God, and it is extended to his enemies. And Jesus says, love, and in case we miss the the fact that he's commanding us with this kind of love, he qualifies it and says, you're to love just as I have loved you. And you ask All right, how has he loved them? Jesus loved them patiently. Imagine having x-ray vision into every propensity that folks have inside of their hearts to let you down and keeping them around. Jesus loved selflessly, constantly put their needs above his own, And on the eve of the night that he's preparing to die, he does one of the most menial tasks and he washes their feet. All of them, catch this, even Judas's feet. Jesus spends his life selflessly serving the very man that would betray him. And so with every intimate connection that Jesus brings him closer and closer, All he does is bring him closer so that it's easier for Judas to stab him in the heart. And the closer that he brings him, the more it's going to hurt him when he does it, as seen by the way that he even comes and says, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? Jesus loves them sacrificially. John 15, no greater love is this than a man lays down his life for his friend. What's amazing is not just the fact that God calls us into his family, but that God keeps us in his family. It's one thing for him to call us in and then to be frustrated by what he gets and to say, hey, I have the receipt. I want to take him back. But he calls us in and he keeps us. Jesus dies on the cross for their sin. And so what he tells them is, hey, the way that I've loved I'm commanding you. I'm not suggesting, I'm not trying to coerce. I am commanding you to love. 
in this way. And do you know what that does? It removes every excuse that you and I have for not loving. Well, it's hard for me to love them because they just don't get it. And I have to repeat myself about the things that I need time and time again. Love just as Christ has loved you. Well, it's hard for me to love them because they're a snake and they really don't have my well-being in mind and I feel like everything that they're doing is to crowd me out and to stab a knife into my heart. Jesus loved selflessly. I really don't want to love them because they're really hard to love and they take so much of my time and they're draining and it's just hard to spend all of that time. Jesus says, love just like I've loved you. He doesn't let any one of us off the hook with any excuse that we have. This command is comforting because we know the great love that God has for us, but it's cleansing and that it removes from us the excuses that you and I would have not to do it. And he says that to the extent that we do that, that we love like that, that the world will know something about that deep love. There's some here in this room that would say, that's what I'm saying. Jesus never told us to join a church, to commit, or to put our name on a roll. Jesus was all about love. I'm not about labels. I'm about love. And to that, I'd say we're missing something that's very, very key in this verse. And what we miss is the context, the arena. Jesus doesn't just spend his time saying what we need to do. But he spends his time and says, no, no, listen. This is who I need you to do it to. And in this context, the who we do it to is just as important as the what we do if we're going to achieve what God has called us to do. Context is everything. Hey, I've shared this story before, but uh, when me and Richard were in college, uh, we uh, were playing a prank on our friends one day, and we had water guns on the outside of their house and uh, one girl on the inside of the house called her friend and said "Uh, hey there's some guys outside trying to get us no context so a football player um, drives up comes out of the car and cocks a loaded gun in our direction Um, and that was the last thing I saw before I pushed a few of my friends out the way and started uh, to run but because he didn't have any context he was doing too much Some of us can be guilty, especially when we take this command of loving, of being Christians that do too much, but don't do quite enough when it comes to what it is that God has called us to do and having the type of power and influence of displaying his love to the world. Here's what I mean. Jesus has this deep love that he wants to share but he also has this container that he wants to share it in. And there's this context that's going to be able to define this deep love. And so many of us will look and say, well, of course, community. Jesus wants to do this in community. And to that I would say, yes, but not exactly. As Jesus tells them to love one another just as he has loved them, to love one another so that the world will know that you're mine. Jesus is not just advocating for a community, but for a specific kind of community. And that's this, a covenant community, a community where people are actually making this formal commitment to one another. You can start at the very start of the Bible. God makes Adam. There is no hindrance in relationship between him and God. And the very first time in the Bible that God says something is not good is a chapter before sin comes into the world. God looks and says, Adam, it's not good for you to be by yourself, so I'm going to give you somebody. And we all think, yeah, yeah, God gives him community because it's hard for the world to see if there's nobody else around. But we have to take a step back and say, uh, God didn't just give him a community. God gave him a covenant commitment. God didn't just give him somebody to be with. God gave him a wife. God gave him this commitment. 
that is meant to show the depths of his love. In the very next chapter, sin comes into the world. They both sin against God. He tries to blame his wife. God comes in, speaks to both of them, promises that he's going to set things in order. And then after that, he goes back and he blesses his wife. It's in this context of relationship where there is a commitment that God intends to display himself to the world. If you think that I'm making too much of this point, let's look down here at the immediate context of the disciples, the 12 people that he shared this with. Jesus steps back on his way to death, looks at these 12 men, And what he says is a new command that I give to you. Love one another. If if there's 12 of y'all in a room and somebody says love one another, the immediate context that you think of is not just a world at large. It's the people that are actually in that room. It's not just love others, but love one another. This is a specific group of people. Listen that outside of the work that Jesus has done on the cross would be enemies. And here's what I mean by that. In Luke chapter 6, it says that Jesus spends all night praying, and then he comes up and he names 12 disciples. Of that 12, there are these two guys. There's this one guy, Matthew, who's a tax collector. And there's this other guy, Simon, who's a zealot. Those words mean nothing to us. So let me put that in our context. 21st century, at the end of 2016. A zealot was a Jew at this time that was frustrated with the oppressive Roman government and wanted to forcefully remove them from power. They felt they were oppressive, unfair, prejudicial, incompetent. Basically, in this last cycle of where we are right now, um, Simon would have been a democratic activist. And then you have Matthew, who's a tax collector, who was also a Jew. However, he made his living off of collecting taxes to fund the oppressive Roman government. He was a supporter in in a sense and an employee, a supporter in this sense. His financial well-being was tied to Rome staying in power. And Jesus, as he's choosing this community of people, he chooses these guys and puts them in the same room. And then he gets down to the end and says, hey, I want y'all to love one another. No, 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 no. Listen, I don't just want y'all to put up with one another. I want y'all to have this patient, sacrificial, enduring, dying for one another. And if y'all do that, then the world at large will know that you're mine. Do you know what this does? It rids us of the popular notion in our world that it's somehow oppressive for somebody to tell me who it is that I can love. I'm free to, te- to say who I can love. No, 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 no. God tells you who to love. Jesus puts this community, this group of people together and tells them to love. And, and so here's what, what I want us to to see that this is more than uh, attacking isolation. This is more than just preaching about the benefits of community. This is God himself commanding us as Christians to find ourselves in covenant relationship. And so here's what I want to do in all of our heads. I want to separate isolation and individualism in our minds. Those are not synonyms. Isolation is this. I don't want to be around people. Individualism is this. 
I don't want to be under anybody's authority. Individualism says this, I'm fine being in community so long as it's a bunch of people that want to do what I want to do. And so here's where it gets tricky when folks say, nah, 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 I love God, I believe that Christ on the cross for my sin. He is the head of my life. And look, I'm not isolated. I've got a community. It, it, it just really doesn't look like being a part of a formal church. Um, I want to read you a quote here that talks about this concept of individualism, and it says this. When we pull off the mask of individualism, what we find behind it is a fear of, nay, a hatred of authority. It's not relationships that people are so afraid of. People long for relationships. Rather, it's a particular kind of relationship that people despise. Loneliness is not the problem. A refusal to live life on anyone else's terms is. This is what I found as a pastor for the past 10 years. It's been so hard is that I, I, I spend my time preaching maybe sometimes naively, about the importance of embracing community and the benefits and the comfort that's found. But then you see people that when they find themselves in a community and there's discomfort and disagreement, I was floored by how easily people stepped away and treated one community for the next and then justified it and said, I'm in community. That's what God has called us to do. But you're not in the particular kind of community that he's called you to. You're in a one where you're surrounded by people that share your same ideologies, frameworks, likes, and dislikes. So it's easy for you to love them and there's nothing unique about that kind of love. You've chosen it for yourselves, but it's shallow. It's a Dixie cup that's incapable of displaying how deep the oceans of God's love goes. And in pulling ourselves away from the covenant com community that God has called us to, we limit our effectiveness in being able to display him to the world. Love flows from commitment, not the other way around. We live in a world that would tell you, no, 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 you find out if you love somebody. And then once you find out that you love them, then take that step and make the commitment to them. And that's just not the way that things work. Commitment is often the seedbed that God will use in our lives to grow up this love. That love that you have towards the natural family that you were born into is birthed out of a commitment to a group of people that you didn't choose on your own, but God chose for you. When God calls you and I to commit to a church or to be a part of a group of people, it's not in some way confining our love or diminishing our love. What he's trying to do is help to define the context that we practice this love in so that it's deepened. It helps you and I to define what it means to be a successful Christian. Here's what I mean by, th by that. Um, if I were to go to, say, you and here, you and your spouse, and I look at a wife and I said, hey, tell me about your husband. Is he a good husband? And she went off and said, well, yeah, I mean, he cares for the poor. He fights for justice. He's generous. Um, he works really hard. He's creative. He does all of this stuff. Um, I'd say yeah, all of those are great things, and we do want those things. However, um, you didn't mention anything about how he cares for you. So you've described him as a great guy, but you failed to talk uh, about him as his role as a husband. For you to talk about how well somebody is as a husband, you have to talk about how he relates to his wife. 
The same is true with a Christian. For you to talk about how well somebody is doing as a Christian, you can't do it and leave out how he relates to other Christians. Jesus is not just advocating for a relationship, but for a particular type of relationship. And when that does take place, when we find ourselves in a community of folks that we didn't choose for ourselves, but Christ himself chose for us, when we find ourselves in a community of people that have different likes, passions, philosophies, convictions, backgrounds, we realize that it takes a supernatural love for that community to stay together and not to explode. And it's that kind of love that God wants to use to proclaim the depths of his love to the world. Look, formal commitment, it doesn't cheapen love. It doesn't make it fake. It deepens love. So three quick things that you and I can do. Here's three quick ways that that plays out. If you would turn to me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, We're just going to read verse 1 through 3. But in a few minutes, I'm just going to give you context of the whole book. This would be a good book for you to read this week and and just spend time. Read through this book as Paul gives instructions to a church that God himself has put together. If formal church membership uh, doesn't cheapen love, but it makes it deep, here's how it does it. And I want to just say this really quick. I've spent a lot of time and I've talked about love Uh, And I want to talk about what it means to be a part of the church, how church membership is God's avenue to get us to really love fully. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul called as an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the very first thing that I'm going to say, the very first way that you and I can make this tangible, this love that we have for one another, is this one. Make a formal commitment. Make a formal commitment. Here's what I mean by that. You may start off and say, well, man, John, I hear what you're saying, but there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt put your name on a church roll. And more than that, it's just a name on a piece of paper. It really doesn't mean anything. Uh, I'd say I think that that actually is false, that it does mean something. Uh, My wife and I had adopted a baby girl six months ago and so for the past six months we've been her mom and dad the adoption has not been finalized yet what that means is that we still have to go to court one day and stand in front of a judge and pledge that we'll care for this little girl and after that do you know what we're going to do we're going to sign our names on a piece of paper her birth certificate that says we are her family That means something. You would never go into a courtroom after an adoption of a teenager that's been waiting for years to have a mom and dad. After they come out crying, you'd never go into a room and say, why are you so joyful? It's just a name on a paper. It doesn't mean anything. You'd never say it, one, because I don't think that you're a jerk, and you'd have to be a pretty big jerk to do that. Uh, But two... Because it does mean something. Look, Paul starts off here and look what he says here in verse 2. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Right there, he calls this place, this church at Corinth. So there is a church localized in a place. It's distinguished from the 
universal church, right? All of us who call on the name of the Lord. What unites us as a universal church is the shared commitment that we have towards God, our Father. What unites us as a local church is the commitment that you and I have to one another and our God. Nowhere in the Bible does Paul or anybody else just call a group of Christians that are in the same place that basically do the same thing, a church, in the same way that you wouldn't call two people who live in the same house and basically do all the same thing that married folks do married. The difference is a commitment that comes with expectation that says, I'm going to be there. And so here's what I say to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the very first step towards this commitment is you primarily committing your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior that died for you. He's died and he makes the offer of salvation readily and apparent from his word. And we do our best to preach that week in and week out to invite you to be a part of this family. And all you have to do to turn to him is to pray and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to take control of your life and watch how he changes your heart on the inside. But then, as soon as you open your eyes from that prayer, find a church with people that you can actually commit yourself to. A formal commitment. It actually means something. Two. There's those of us in here that have already made a formal commitment. Um, And so here's what I'm going to share with you. Make your formal commitment a functional commitment. So there's folks that are not a part of a church, but then there's folks that are a part of a church, um, and they're just a part of the family by name only. Uh, And I think the thing that we see here in this book is... Paul calls this group a church. And here's what I mean about reading the rest of the letter is uh, being a a part of a church affects not just one part of your life, but every part of your life. So Paul writes an instruction to this church in this letter. It's a group of folks that are close enough, chapters 1 to 4, to envy one another, to compete to have their favorite leaders. This is a church in chapter 5 that's close enough to know and even gossip about marital infidelity that goes on in the life of the church. Everybody knows, but nobody does anything. And and so Paul's saying, hey, you as a church, uh, don't just hand out the label Christian willy-nilly. Like, y'all have to protect this label. Chapter 6, this is a group that's close enough to do business together. Find out that even people in the church can be shady sometimes and then want to sue one another. And Paul says, hey, man, if y'all are part of a family, y'all shouldn't sue one another. Work it out because if you don't, it's going to display something to, to the world that's contrary to what Christ has called us to. Chapter 7, he talks about marriage and divorce. 8 through 10, Paul's like, hey, y'all as a church, y'all have to watch out how you hang out at parties, how you drink, how you eat meat, because, man, if y'all do that and think your Christian freedom is only for yourself and you don't take into account how it affects other Christians, you're going to make them fall and you're going to say something to the world that you don't want to say. Chapter 11 to 14, it's a group that seems like they come together to worship week in and week out. And Paul gives them instructions about how you should do that. Hey, when y'all come for communion, don't drink all the wine and get drunk before everybody else can come in. Right? Share it, right? Paul knows that this is a family. Chapter 15, this is a group that's close enough where funerals and death Make them question the hope of the resurrection. And Paul's saying, no, y'all all have to have the same hope. 
It's a family that's close enough where at the end of the letter, do you know what Paul does? First Corinthians 16 is probably one of the most ordinary chapters in the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. What Paul does is he says, hey, y'all, um, I just want y'all to know I'm going to try to get there to see y'all, uh, but I'm going to travel to here. I'm going here. I'm going here. Um, yo, Philip and the rest of the crew, like, y'all know them. They say, what's up, grace and peace and all of that. And so, 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 so what they do as a church is essentially what we just did up here on this stage. Hey, y'all, trip's going to be gone for a month. Let's pray for him. Let's, let's work through all of that. This is a community of folks that isn't just a family on paper, but their familial commitment affects their day-to-day. Here's one of the most basic ways that you can do that. Here's one of the most basic ways that you can make the formal commitment you have for your church a functional one. Pray for the members that are a part of your church. Here's what takes place when you and I pray. Even if we don't know people, we love them in the way that we present their needs towards God. If we don't know people, then we love them and they are on our minds. So that when we see somebody that we don't know and we haven't checked up with, we can actually check in on them. And the family doesn't feel fake or forced, it feels real. This is why we put together a directory as a church with pictures so that wherever you are, the family of God can be on your mind and you can functionally carry out this commitment that you have to care for one another. Too often, we let our feelings define our reality and what it is that we'll do. I don't feel like they're family, so why bother? Yo, I don't feel like I get the commitment that I hope for, so I'm just going to step back. Um, I'd say don't let your feelings determine what it is that you do. Let the reality of what God says determine what it is that you do. I've got a good friend, um, and what he does is every time that his wife frustrates him, upsets him, where he feels like he's disrespected, he'll wash dishes. He'll sweep the floor. He'll make sure that the house is spick and span. And so as somebody who doesn't like to sweep or wash dishes or clean, um, I asked him why, and he says, uh, because I never want how I feel about my wife to determine how I function in our marriage. I want the reality of the fact that she is my wife uh, to make me go out of my way to serve, especially at times when I feel the most distant. You can do the same thing for those of y'all that are a part of a church and have found yourself pulling away because you're like, I don't feel like they're family. What God's word said is that it's a reality. You are family. So act like it. Go out of your way and serve with the strength that God gives. And I imagine that God will use that to deepen your love for for the people that you feel estranged to and to deepen their love for you. Lastly, fight for those that are on the fringes. There's some of y'all that are part of a church right now and you felt the family, the connection. You felt the fruits of, this is great. I've got a bunch of people that love me and serve me, and I've got these great friend, friend groups. My advice is don't keep it to yourself. Look for people that are on the fringes and invite them to come in. This is not a forced community. The label of church member is not meant to make it a forced group. It's meant to make it a focused commitment so that you and I know where God has called us to love, where it is that we need to endure. And I think Paul ends with verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows that unless the foundation is Christ and the peace that he brings, there's no way that this little experiment that's called the church is going to work out. 
There is no other group on earth that is made up of as diverse a group of people, not just racially, but ideologically, socioeconomically, as the church. And it's specifically through this unity that God wants to display the depths of his love to the world and the way that you and I experience the deepness of, of God's love and display the deepness of God's love is committing to the community that he himself has defined, not one that we've created for ourselves. And I think what we do when we see this uh, is that when we wear the label of church member proudly, um, we can wear the Christian label confidently and what we see is this is not a restrictive love it's a love that or a label that redefines us it's not an exclusive love meant to keep folks out that aren't church members it's an inclusive love meant to show the rest of the world that anybody can get in on the free offer of forgiveness that God gives us this is not an empty love, right? If, if we see it as empty, it would be like somebody going up to the Grand Canyon and saying, this is empty. It's not that it's empty. It's that it gives us so much room to show the depths of God's love, this community that God has made for us. It's not a confusing term. It's meant to clarify. As Christ calls us saints, it's not meant to intimidate you and I. It's meant to empower us. It's meant to remind you and I that we have everything that we need to display this full and deep love to the world as Christ keeps us together. So make a formal commitment to a church. It doesn't have to be this one, but let it be one. For those of y'all that have already made that, make that commitment functional. Act like what you are. We are family for better or worse. Let's act like it. And lastly, let's fight to maintain this peace that God brings that he wants to use to show to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word and uh, for the beauty of the community that you yourself have put together. Uh, help us not to... Um, uh, to think that we're wiser than you are, Father. Uh, I pray that you would help us to embrace the community that you've made uh, for us to show off your deep love to the world. Lord, I pray that you would keep us as a church together, that we would fight to maintain this, realizing how important it is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.